Welcome, one and all, to a little thing we like to call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode that you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Good Judgment Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Wade Pettit. And as equally always, I'm your other host, Tankel. Uh, Wade, we've got another blockbuster episode uh, for the audience today, don't we? That's right. In, in, in our continued effort to let people have other voices <laughs> and to talk about topical subjects, things in the news, things that, that, that people are talking about, we have a special guest in studio today to talk about the topic of nuclear verdicts. And I'm going to mispronounce that word. I apologize. <laughs> I can't wait till that happens. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, um, we have a, a special uh, guest, a friend in the studio today, uh, Mr. Matthew Moffat of the Atlanta firm of Gray, Rust, St. Almond, Moffat & Brisky. Uh, Matt has spent his career uh, on the civil defense side of the bar, serving as a former president of the Georgia Defense Lawyers Association and, and also teaching at that institution's trial academy. So welcome, Matt. Well, thank you for having me. Wow, another standing ovation for our guests. That's really awesome. Our studio audience gets very excited. They're very about, excited. Uh, everything. So tell me, I, Matt, you and I have not met before. Tell me about where you're from and a little bit about your practice, how you got where you are now. Sure. Grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, went to the University of Georgia, go dogs. Then I finished at Emory Law School in 1990, been practicing law over 30 years for the defense. So if somebody asked me what I do, it depends on the audience, obviously. So <laughs> right. if I was at a social gathering, a cocktail party, and somebody asked me, what do you do? I might respond with wheelchairs and caskets. <laughs> right. And I get right. strange looks, and right. I might then say damage control. I might say I work for corporate America. Maybe I wouldn't say that. Nah, probably then I probably would say I help local businesses. So I get involved when something bad happens. Somebody is injured severely, or there's an unfortunate death. And I try to get the matter resolved. If I can, I try it in front of a jury. That's what I do. Do you generally work with insurance companies? Many insurance companies and many self-insured corporations. Okay. And is that generally what your what your entire firm does? You all correct. basically a defense That's firm? correct. That's what I thought. Yeah. And I know several of the people over there at your firm. So that's great. So Tane, let's talk, let's let's give everybody sort of a little lead in as to what we're we're talking about today. This has been a topic that's gotten some press attention, some political attention, that being nuclear verdicts. Sure. You know, for those of our audiences who are plugged into the world of litigation, you know, you've undoubtedly heard this phrase, nuclear verdicts, kind of bandied around recently, uh, used to describe verdicts that I guess are extraordinary, or, or that might be a good word. Um, for example, uh, Jim Butler's verdict against uh, the uh, Ford Motor Company last year, $1.7 billion with a B, uh, that comes to mind. But but there have been others that have been in the, the range of those extraordinary verdicts. So Matt, when you and people that are in the generally on the defense side hear the phrase nuclear verdict, what comes to mind? Well, the first thing would be 10 million or more. That's just an easy benchmark for us to begin our discussion over. I've got a lot of stats. If you want to hear some stats, sure, I can give we you love stats. stats. Yeah, we love okay. So in Georgia, since 2018, we've had 40 plus verdicts of 10 million or more. Okay. Mm -hmm that have been uh, rendered in various cases. Nationally, since 2020, or in 2020 rather, there was a $5 billion aggregate. And in 2022, that jumped to over $18 billion in these nuclear verdicts. Now, what's important is that the median verdict in 2020 was about $21 million. 
but in 2022 it went to 41 million. Wow! So and that's a 95 percent increase. And I did read something interesting, and I'll mention this. Um, It's been said that civil court juries are issuing verdicts for damages and amounts that often rival the annual budgets of small countries. (laughs) So that'd be a nuclear verdict. That 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 sounds nuclear. But it sounds so. One of the definitions I've seen is sort of a flat line: any verdict over ten million dollars. And it seems to me that that doesn't make a lot of sense if because it doesn't take into account what the specials were. Correct. So. When you look up those statistics, for example, are those going to be definitionally a verdict over $10 million? Correct. Okay. That is correct. So without regard to what the underlying specials or underlying facts were. That's correct. Okay. Now, are they all personal injury cases? They're mostly injury and death cases. Could they some, be a contract case? They could be, and some could be uh, intellectual property cases also. Okay. okay. Um, then we get to thermo nuclear verdicts. <laughs> oh, oh, this is new. This is new. Wow. This is a new level. Debuting here on the Good now, Judgment Podcast. that would be over $100 million. Well, tell us, tell us some right. statistics about here those because I'm really interested in this. Since 2009, there have mm-hmm. been 191 verdicts exceeding $100 million. Wow. In Georgia? For, no, this is nationally. Okay. okay. 48 verdicts over $500 million and 23 over $1 billion since wow. 2009. Okay. And I'm assuming that that compares the same as as the other uh, statistic that you gave us, where that yes. is a significant jump in those large verdicts. Significant jump. Texas, Florida, California, Pennsylvania top the list. So I have heard that Georgia, and you know, you see all the, the little monikers that go with stuff, the judicial hellhole, and all this kind of stuff. Is Georgia particularly high on that list as you're looking at your statistics? It's number nine. Although corporate America has uh, given us the title of the number one judicial hellhole or a tort reform association has done that. We've had about four point four billion in the aggregate since 2009. Okay, so if you I mean, it probably all statistics sort of depend on when you when you define the the terms. But you're saying since 2009, we're about ninth. Yes. Isn't that about where we are? We're trending up. Oh, we're trending up. Okay. I got you. Well, so the statistics that you're giving us here today seem to seem to indicate that this is, in fact, a phenomenon, because one of the things that I that I jokingly talked to Wade about is is whether this was what I've read about, like a Bader Meinhof scenario where. Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) You talk about stuff sometimes and I think you are completely pulling it out of your pocket. He does. And then you went and looked it up. Well, but now it's like German people. (laughs) Why are you mentioning German people? Because Bader Meinhof essentially is somebody says to you, man, have you noticed all the purple cars on the road these days? And you've never noticed a bunch of purple cars. And the next day while you're driving, you see like eight purple cars. And, And it's because it's been called to your attention, not because there are suddenly more purple cars than there were the day before. And so that's what Bader Meinhof it, it talks about. And so I, I was curious as to whether or not the statistics backed up, whether this is truly something that has changed or whether we've just been keeping a closer eye on these big verdicts that have happened. But again, it, it seems like this is a real thing. It's both. We've had change and we're keeping a close eye on it at the same time. If you pick up the daily report, you know, any given day, you're going to see either a large verdict or a large settlement. Sure. Yeah. And that's that's another thing that that I think, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, is how one drives the other and and, and so forth. So Matt, but, what, why do you think this is happening? Yeah. 
I mean, in your day-to-day practice, have you experienced this in your day-to-day experience, like in your firm's experience? Well, let me just, let me preface it by saying this. The cases that I try, I have attempted to resolve. I have felt that we've put reasonable money on the table, and I have had discussions with uh, the opposing lawyer, and it's an excellent plaintiff's bar, by the way. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And it all comes down to this. I usually say, listen, now, one side has misevaluated this case. <laughs> I sure as heck hope it's not my side. But but one side's misevaluated it. And it it starts there in a misevaluation of the risk. And it ends up, unfortunately, at times with a nuclear verdict. Well, and as lawyers try in civil cases, we always talk to our clients about that aberrant verdict. You know, I mean, we know that those are lurking out there for every lawyer. I lost cases that I never really expected to lose. And won cases, quite frankly, that, no I business never, yeah, that I didn't expect to win. And, and so, you know, those are always out there. But what seems to be happening in these cases is those apparent verdicts continue to go up and up. And that's what you're saying. Well, I can offer this to you from industry analysts, from some public surveys and some media reports. I can give you a list of the reasons why we are seeing these nuclear and thermonuclear verdicts. Do that, but then make sure that that comports with what Matt's seeing. That's too. right. Yeah. And it does because okay. it matches. I made a list and then I researched. Okay. And the list Our pretty guests much almost never research things. Wait, I'll just cool. research. Get Matt back. <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah, this is okay. There is corporate mistrust out there. Okay. Generated, uh, at least to some extent, by some corporate misconduct. So mm-hmm. I call it anti-corporate bias. That is out there in the public arena. You have some anti-insurance bias. You have people that automatically assume, well, insurance will take care of that. They have insurance. My verdict is going to be covered by insurance. So even if you don't have anti-corporate bias, <laughs> you've got some kind of influence that insurance is going to take care of it as if that money is just out there yeah, for anyone to, the to pull off the tree. Yeah, right? right. It's just magic money. The, the money trees. You've right. got some social pessimism. You know, we the people don't have it so good. You the corporate do. Robin Hood syndrome. That's exactly kind of thing. right. Maybe some erosion of tort reform. You know, our Supreme Court here struck caps on damages. Yes. Um, you've got the public uh, desensitization. I want to say that right. <laughs> to large numbers. I, I was going to bring that That's up. That's right. I mean, when your national debt tops the multi-trillion and people start hearing that number, a billion means less than it used to. I mean, when, when that becomes a common number, uh, because back in the day, we never heard of anything in the in the range of a billion. You know, a million dollars was, right. was a lot of money. So what's reported today in news stories, when we hear about CEOs, we know what they're earning what their salary is, what their stock options are. And on the news today, we heard about a prominent coach, and the story was not about how much he makes, but they told us he makes about $10 million a year. So people hear these numbers, and it just doesn't seem like it's so outrageous or it's so high as it used to sound years ago. Do you think... As I was thinking about this, do you think that the change in jury composition has in any way affected this? When we went from selecting juries just from voter registration lists to going with driver's license and and other forms of that? Absolutely, because you've got voter registration uh, as the benchmark for the federal court jury pool. And the state court may draw from voter lists, but they also draw from the driver's license lists. I think that has made a significant difference. Otherwise, we would see 
more of these nuclear verdicts in federal court. Now, there have been some. There was a $21 million wrongful death verdict within the last couple of years in the Atlanta federal court system. But you don't hear about too many of those. And corporate America or business would like to litigate in federal court. That is one of the reasons. Is it really sense. verdict? I've always wondered because most lawyers and, and no, no um, disrespect to our brothers on the federal bench, Shout out, Judge Hall. Hey, um, Judge Cohen. Judge, Judge Self. Most lawyers don't want to be in federal court because of the amount of work and deadlines and differing things that are required there. But then that makes a lot of sense if the corporate side or the insurance side or the defense side, however you want to look at it, would like to be there because there might be a more favorable jury pool? Correct. And the jury pool comes from many different counties, not just one. Yeah. Now, we heard a lot about that in the Trump case. They were trying to move that case to federal court because the jury pool would pull from North Georgia, more than basically. Fulton County. Yeah, North Georgia. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk about this as a practitioner. So so knowing, you know, going in that this phenomenon seems to be happening, that it's a trend uh, nationwide. How do you deal with it as a practitioner? How do you how do you condition the jury from voir dire on, you know, to 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 deal with that sort of thing? And well, I know you don't want to give away all your well, secrets, all right. but well, but the first thing you, well, the first thing you have to do, you have to start with the paying client and you have to set some expectations. These cases are expensive. They're expensive to litigate properly for for leveraging purposes to get the best result. And by that, I mean, we need consultants. We need jury consultants. We often have to focus or mock try cases so we don't miss an opportunity to settle below what the number may be. And we don't want to overpay a case either. So you have to set expectations on the front end. You have to conduct a proper evaluation on the front end. Then we get to the trial and it begins with the jury selection process. That jury has to be vetted for anti-corporate bias and the other predispositions that would be adverse to the defense. That may be the most important part of a trial. And unfortunately, today, I don't think that it's done adequately. Yeah. I think it starts there. And I'm, I'm not trying to cast any kind of blame on anybody, but I just think, you know, if you go into a room that is full of Joe Biden supporters and try to convince them to vote for Donald Trump, good luck. Right. I think I'd right. rather be in there with some Donald Trump supporters or a majority of Donald or, Trump supporters. Or at supporters. least you have to know the inclinations of those jurors. I mean, you've got to figure out a way to find out what their what their biases might be. And that's what that's what Wardeer is sort of about. That's right. So Matt, one of the things that we try to do is I try to do this podcast so that my mom could understand. Yeah. And sure. um one of the things that we are all talking about or talking around and, and we all know it, but people in the world may not know it. You're not allowed to tell juries that insurance is involved in the case. That is correct. Under Georgia law. That is correct. Although there are some social media ads or public service announcements that seem to do that. I noticed one the other day that was clearly designed to educate jurors. Right. It wasn't really a commercial. Right. It was it was really aimed at jurors. Uh, it, it was clear to me. Of course, I'm a practitioner and a bit skeptical of everything, but uh, you know that that jumped out at me as like, oh, I know what the purpose of that ad was, and it wasn't necessarily to get clients. I so, even had a case within the last few months where somebody in the jury pool during the jury questioning process made the comment to the plaintiff lawyer that. He didn't feel that the plaintiff's law firm was 
advertising sincerely to the public because they were educating the public on matters that jurors are not supposed to know. And it was clear to me what he was talking about. And I was wow. amazed he even knew about it or could say that this was a business person. Wow. Wow. That's really, he was a, he was a well-educated jury. I bet he didn't make your jury, did he? Yeah. <laughs> he didn't end up on the jury, did he? <laughs> so let me, so let's just be clear. You have to qualify jurors as to their relationship to insurance. And I don't think we need to get into right. the whole stock for that. mutual funds and all that mutual companies. They all know. But, but, but you have to qualify them, but you can't tell them that they're involved. But why would you pick Allstate? I mean, I don't, I don't know who you represent. So that's this, this is good. Why don't we? Why are we asking you about Allstate if Allstate doesn't have a? They're not in the case. Yeah. Well, they, well, they are in the case. Yeah. I, I don't know. Do you that, have any that, thoughts? That's just for efficiency. When they bring you know hundreds of jurors into a jury assembly room and they believe they might have a case potentially involving an Allstate or State Farm, they're going to screen everybody. Yeah. They just don't want to bring those people in because most of those insurance uh, cases may involve one of those larger insurers. Exactly. Yeah. Of course. Well, let's talk about something that's that's. I mean, it, it started way back in 2009, but let's talk about something that, that I hear a lot about as a practitioner these days, the, the use of the so-called reptile theory. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to, for the folks who don't really know that or who aren't on the civil side, I'm going to dumb it down really quick, but it's essentially this idea that um, you can increase verdicts uh, with a jury by appealing to essentially the base element of the brain uh, that, that has kind of the fight or flight response embedded in it. It's not really that it's the safety response and that sort of thing by uh, characterizing the actions of, of the party of the, the defendant as um, dangerous and dangerous to the public at large. That that's kind of a, that's, that's my, right. my understanding of how it works. First of all, is that something that you're seeing yes. being used out in? in Absolutely. In, okay. How does it manifest itself? Yeah. Well, all right. So I've been all over the country over the last almost 15 years teaching defense lawyers in various states I about of, this I sort of figured you had, strategy so, yeah. and about how to counter it. And I had a trial against the authors of that book yeah. uh, many years ago and learned about it. They were very effective with it. I read their book and you're exactly right. So the strategy would be, Let's help the jury understand that the defendant violated a safety rule. And as a result, that put our community in danger. And unfortunately, it was this plaintiff who was the victim of it. But it could have been anyone in the community. It could have and been it, any of you or your family or your friends. It's the thing you can't argue. That's the golden rule. Dangerously yeah. close to the golden and rule. Yes, that's but it, right. But, but there's a way to do it that's There's an effective way to do it. Rule. It yeah. focuses on the defendant's conduct. Mm -hmm. When I started practicing law, the focus seemed to be more on the sympathy or empathy for the injured plaintiff. And I think that these lawyers and jury consultants figured out through focus group and testing that that doesn't sell as well as the bad conduct that irritates or angers a jury into wanting to send a message to do something about it to make the community safer. Because I, th I think the realistic view of, of what happens in these what we call nuclear and thermonuclear verdicts is emotion gets involved. I mean, there's, exactly. there's no there's no way to pump up the damages in that way unless the jurors get emotionally involved and invested in what's going to happen to the defendant and the plaintiff in those cases. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. 
Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Without giving away all of your secrets, how do you generally counter that as a defense lawyer? Well, I want to get the heat out of the case as best I can. I want to present a reasonable defense. I don't want anyone on that jury to look at me and say, you know, you're not reasonable. You should have settled this case. I don't like your client. And I really don't like you, corporate America. I, I have to avoid that. So I want to get the heat out of the case. What does that mean? Well, I want to concede points that I should concede. I want to admit negligence if I should admit negligence. I want to focus on what I think the most important issue in that case is to explain to the jury why I'm here to lead them to the reasonable result. And I'll tell you, on behalf of judges everywhere, we appreciate it when you get to the point. <laughs> and I think that we're probably speaking for jurors indirectly, that when you get when when you identify if 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 causation is not the issue, admitting negligence in in my mind takes so much of the heat out of the case because the people quit thinking that they're trying to be Matlock or something. Sorry, that's a very old reference, but they're, they're not being detectives trying to figure out who committed the crime. They're, they're now solely on, okay, there was a car wreck and, you know, and, and I think, I think that it, that lawyers everywhere could take a lot of, a lot of lessons from that. Do you agree, Tank? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I have seen verdicts happen in a case that I believed were ma the majority of the reason that they occurred was because the jury got angry with the lawyer. They were <laughs> right. wasting their time. Right. They weren't getting to the point. They were throwing up every possible argument, not and just the probably, good arguments. It's probably good and bad. You've probably seen and I've seen the excessive opposite. verdicts and 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 probably underrepresentative verdicts for the, some of those same reasons. Well, it, it, as I said earlier, and I know Matt's had, probably had the same experience. I won some cases I didn't think I was going to win. And I, and in many of those cases that I, that, that happened when you go back and analyze it, I want to say it's because I did such a darn good job, but a lot of times it was because my opponent didn't do a great job. That's very accurate. Sometimes I find myself trying not to lose a case because it's being lost by the other side. <laughs> right, I don't right. want to mess Just that let up. Lose it. Let me facilitate that. <laughs> let me help you. So the best response to a judge, when a judge ever asks, how long is this going to take? The defense lawyer should always say half as long as the plaintiff lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. So, well, let me ask. Let me ask a question. Go back right to the nuclear. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how is this phenomenon uh, that we can that we can talk about now? How is that affecting your ability to settle cases? 
Because I mean that that that's a another. I mean, obviously, most cases don't go to trial. So it reminds me of the old movie line. You know, the rates have gone up, <laughs> yeah. and that's what we find in mediation or in direct settlement negotiation. Uh, the value that uh, the plaintiffs bar places on cases. I want to say it's double, if not more, than it was five to 10 years ago. It just is. And it's challenging to try to get a case resolved when you have expectations that differ so much on each side. Sure. And, and when, you're, when you're dealing with insurers, because uh, I've, I've done that myself, and self-insured clients, uh, you said a minute ago, you, you've got to get them conditioned to all of this, too. They need to understand that this is out there and that it's happening um, so that they can understand that resolving cases may cost more than it did a few years ago. So are you seeing at mediation, for example, do you see mediators? I know, I know mediators don't lean on people, Tane, because you're a good mediator, but, right. but do you feel more pressure from mediators and others at a higher number than you would have expected five years ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago? I, I don't feel pressure, but I, I always invite the mediator to educate me and educate my decision maker on that reality. Yeah. It is. Do you find that your clients are more aware and more willing to change a, a preconceived notion if they, if they become convinced it's wrong? My clients will. That's what I'm saying. I think they will. That's been my so experience. So what's, what's the fix for nuclear verdicts and thermonuclear verdicts? Well, we could have legislative reform, for example. I believe in Texas, you mentioned reptile. They passed some legislation that would prohibit the plaintiff attorney from introducing a violation of an industry standard or a safety regulation unless it directly contributed to the incident causing the injury. So if a trucking corporation violated safety protocols, but it didn't relate to why the event occurred, they're out. Okay. That's one thing that has occurred in Texas. Have they noticed any impact? Has it been I'm long enough sure. for them to know? I, I has it been long enough? I, I don't think so. And I think there are creative ways to work around all of that anyway. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And I noticed there have been a few courts, too, that have spoken to uh, the reptile theory. Uh, some have gone one way, some have gone that's the exactly other. Some right. have said it's fine. Some that's have said, right. yeah, it's something that's prohibited, but we don't know exactly how to define how it's prohibited. I mean, it, it's kind of difficult. I have to hear it and then I can rule on it. Right. So we get it. We get asked this a lot by legislators and others. How's the backlog doing? And most of it, frankly, our whole system gets focused on people in jail and moving criminal cases for lots of reasons. How, what's your perception on how is the backlog in Georgia post COVID-19? I'm as busy as I've ever been. In a good way? Well, well, you might want <laughs> to ask my bride of 30 plus years right. that question, but I feel like I'm on a trial calendar every other week. Are you trying cases? Though? We're trying many more cases now. I think I've tried four in the last eight months. And you probably went through a stage around COVID where you didn't try hardly anything. Nothing. Tried one virtual trial. Yeah. How was that? Um, interesting. It was virtual jury selection and then it was live um Evidence in court for evidence presentation with mask. I didn't care for it. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's did it, it was the verdict what you thought it would be? Yes. Okay. Um, well, people were not as willing to render plaintiff's verdicts during COVID. Interesting. That's interesting. So tell me this. Do you perceive, Generally. and this is more of a global thing, 
do you perceive that there's anything judges could or should do in this whole nuclear verdict conversation? Yes. Number one, I think I would appreciate it if judges would allocate more time for a thorough jury selection process. There is a lot of bias out there, and you can't elicit that bias in 30 minutes or an hour. I would also like to see judges consider alternative forms of the jury questioning process. Talk about that. I think we should have online or written juror questionnaires because in private, people are more forthcoming. That's what the jury psychologists tell us from the research. Now, some judges will allow this. Uh, There's a judge in Fulton that allows it. There's a judge in Cobb that allows it. But many won't. I don't know why. They won't allow it or you don't, it doesn't come up. I asked for it. Most of the time, the plaintiff lawyer agrees because here are all the questions I want to ask. What do you want to ask? And we get together and we present, you know, a written questionnaire or an online questionnaire where everybody can do it on their phones. It goes to a portal. It, you know, compiles in real time and everybody has instant access to it. I think it's more efficient. Wade Wade and I have discussed this many times on this program uh, and also many times in private. Um, Judges tend to not do anything the way they haven't done it before, and so uh, yeah, we're not really known for our innovation. Yeah, we're we're and I, but I think uh, COVID changed some of that because of necessity. We had to break out of some some paradigms that we had formed over hundreds of years. Um, but I, but I, I'm not surprised to hear you say that you know judges are not amenable to doing it, the selection process differently than they've always done it. And um, Wade and I do train some judges. And so, you know, maybe Good. we can go in and Good. encourage them to. So uh, here's the thing. To do and, 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 and I don't want to get in a debate and I know we're running long, but mm-hmm. sure. there is a great deal of case law that, that sort of restricts what must be allowed versus what can be allowed. And it gets frustrating on the bench side, and I'm just shouting out for all my judges in the world, when you have people who are trying to try the case in voir dire. Correct. And, but, and, that, but that's what I teach my students to do, Wade. I know. And see, that's one of the yin and yangs. And I guess that's what our role is. But I think there is a very different – understand – as the judge, I'm trying to protect the panel from doing what that juror you just talked about that was well-educated did in that case, sort of infect the whole panel. Right. <clears throat> when you do questionnaires, that uh, that danger is eliminated. Yeah. Because the judge approves the questions. Well, and it's not answered out loud. That's correct. Yeah, you're not so in the group it, setting. If, it, there's no risk of infecting the panel. That's correct. Because you have access. Now, you might be a little more circumspect when we do individual voir dire, right. but you have so much more information. The actual voir dire process could be shorter. It would if be. you had that, if you had questionnaires, it would yeah. be, it would be much more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. And I want to know all of the jurors that I want, I want opinions. That's all I want. I want opinions from jurors that would lead me to conclude they're not the best juror for this type of case. Maybe they would be removed for cause or maybe I have to exercise a strike. But both sides need to know that. Yes. And I do think that there is a lot of advantage, especially when you will do the work. I mean, we'll have to mail the thing, but you'll do the work. We'll of do that. The document. We'll do all of do it. Do it electronically. And absorb yeah. all the costs, and electronically is the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. absolutely. Well, 
we, we're we're short on time, but I sure. wanted to see any final thoughts that you have about this whole this whole issue and kind of where we're going or where it is right now. I think all lawyers should have the same goal, which is to get all cases resolved reasonably. That's the ultimate goal, and the judges should help us along the way. Absolutely, that's and the I most think you should do thing. always do that through really good mediators. So, I'm, <laughs> you know, any, for our studio audience, we I'm should pointing, pointing to myself. We as should I say mediate that, so every <laughs> single case. I we should mediate every and, case, and in, and in Cobb County, you have to do that. So uh, <laughs> that's not a problem. Well. Folks, we really want to thank our special guest today, uh, Matthew Moffat from uh, Gray, Russ, St. Ahmed, Moffat, Brisky, for his interesting discussion, uh, fascinating discussion on nuclear verdicts. Um, anything you want to tell us about the firm or anything else? Uh, y'all are located right here in Atlanta, right? Right here in Metro Atlanta. I practice law with the same lawyer since I got out of law school. That's amazing. That really is. Couple, uh, one, at least we, can't, we can't end it now. No. That's, <laughs> right. hey, that's very rare. It is it? rare. At least one of your partners was in law school with me. So I remember, remember them. So um, God, he's old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are, well, Matt, thanks, thanks very much for that. And you know, wait, gosh, we need something like we should have a parting gift, like a coffee mug or something for our guests. On you the mean like podcast. like we just carry on parting gifts for all of our guests? Yeah, yeah, we should do we, that. We should do that. I'll be on the phone about that. Yeah, get somebody on that. Um, <laughs> so, folks, thank you for listening to us, and thanks for Matt for letting you hear another voice. This is this is Wade Paget, and and this if you need to to this was actually a product of a listener uh, request. It absolutely was. Yeah, we had one of our listeners write in to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com and uh, ask us uh, to, to cover this topic. It was a great idea. And please reach out to us there uh, with your ideas and your comments or, or your favorite recipe for football chili. I'm, I'm open to anything. It's, <laughs> it's pretty cool. And like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Absolutely. So with that, there is a great deal of, of excitement. Yeah, there's the studio audience again. There's it's fire. time for the music trivia portion of the show. Oh, Tane, have awesome. you read this one? I have not. I didn't Perfect. look at it Go. at all. Oh, I'm reading it. Oh, yes. okay. So as always on the Good Judgment Podcast, we like to switch things up a bit. And we've dealt with music trivia from all sorts of genres and all sorts of eras. And today, it's time to discuss that iconic band, Van Halen. Um, very different from some of our hip hop trivia and funk and uh, fun facts about Elvis Presley. Fun fact about Eddie Van Halen. He could not read music, just like Stevie Ray Vaughan that Man, we just talked about. Callback. Wow. He, uh, he memorized the finger movements of his guitar teacher and played by ear. Now, Let's start with an easy trivia question. Eddie and Alex Van Halen were the only consistent members of the band. Of course, you have David Lee Roth and Sammy Hagar as lead singers. But what was the name of the bass player during their heyday in the late 1980s and 1990s? I, Do you not know this? I don't, I don't know this, and I probably should. There's a famous actor that has this same name, but has a third name of Hall. Anthony Michael Hall? Ta-da! Oh, wow. Well, at least I know my 80s, uh, you know, B-list actors really well. Easy um, on the B-list. <laughs> um, now, Van Halen produced a lot of good music, but uh, they it only It was actually had, Michael Anthony, by the way. Michael Anthony, I'm but sorry. It's the same thing. Yeah, Michael Anthony. Uh, but they only had one number one hit on the Billboard 100. Which song was their number one hit? I did not look. You can look. You can read this I, next. I can read this next part. Do you think it was Panama... Hot for teacher, or maybe the cradle will rock. I read nope. Uh, <laughs> oh, it was jump. Go ahead and jump. 
Um, that's amazing. And it was uh, the number one song in America for five weeks beginning in February 1984. Are you so. noticing a trend of our trivia? 1984, I, I am. Yeah, it's all, it's all right in our wheelhouse, yeah, Wade. Yeah. One last question. Eddie Van Halen was famously married to Valerie Bertinelli. Oh, America's sweetheart. Uh, and they had a son who eventually joined the band. The son's first name was Wolfgang. So what was Eddie Van Halen's middle name? Ed, Ed, oh, and the hint is there is a bit of a connection to his son's first name. Give up? I know I do. Do you really not know this? Eddie Van Halen's middle name? No. If I told you his son's name was Wolfgang and there's a connection. You and he called him Wolfie. I but you don't that. get a connection? I don't, I don't get Read a connection. Read it. Uh, oh, his middle name was Ludwig. Just as in Beethoven. So, folks, you come here to learn things. You learn so very much here at the Good Judgment Podcast. I mean, just the music trivia alone uh, is is part of the most useless knowledge that we impart to you. But it's worth knowing. So, thanks, folks. We appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try our best to give you actionable information, but in a format that does not make you want to hurt yourself. Two thoughts. Some topics allow us the latitude to be a little bit more fun. Number two, if we failed you, we will try to do our best to do better in the next episode. We know that you have lots of choices and we're honored that you chose us this time. We're kind of amazed to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former director, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law, my new part-time employer. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises all along, but we didn't, so... Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges all across Georgia. Wade and I are also grateful to the State Justice Institute who allow us to do this through their generosity. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, SJI, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact someone else with your complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Please visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all our episode outlines and more details about our podcasts. Some of you send emails asking for copies of the outlines. Seriously, people, they're available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. And we say that like 20 times during every broadcast. But seriously, you can upload or download or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule and at your convenience. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.